When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. My name is Jenna and I'm here to help you do all the hard things. I'm a licensed professional counselor with nearly 10 years of clinical and research experience working with people who have some of the most debilitating OCD and anxiety in the world. I'm also a mom, a personal trainer, and a lover of modern spirituality. My goal is to bring you all the research, guidance, and encouragement you need to help you remember and know how strong you truly are. Now let's get to it. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of All the Hard Things. We are today going to talk about mental compulsions and pure O. Um, so we're going to go over a couple different things. If you listened to either live or you got a recording for my talk on this through No CDs webinars, this is going to sound very similar. I'm taking a lot of my material from that. But it might be a good review even if you have heard it before, and certainly if you've not heard it before, then it will greatly serve you, I hope. Um, So this is going to be a two-part series, Um, so definitely listen to this one first, come back and listen to the second episode whenever I've gotten that down. But throughout the next two episodes, we're going to talk a lot about mental compulsions, and we're going to talk about Pure O in particular. So We're going to define the term pure O, kind of its origins and the great debate of whether pure O exists or not. And spoiler alert, it's kind of complicated to answer that question. I'm also going to review examples of mental compulsions, and we're going to go over really thoroughly what their functions are. So I think it's really important to grasp that even if in a logical state of mind, when we're not actively anxious or actively compulsing, we need to understand that all of these compulsions serve some type of function. They're doing, we're doing them for some reason. We're doing these things for some reason. Even if after the fact we can kind of be like, well, that actually doesn't work. That doesn't actually do what it promises me that it's going to do. There's still some type of function there. So when we're talking about mental compulsions like mentally reviewing information, giving ourselves self-assurance or rumination, there are some functions there. So I'm going to go over what some of those functions might be. And we're also going to identify some tactics to help kind of empower you guys through these common difficulties because mental compulsions can be really, really tricky for some people and not just for the people who are suffering with them, but for therapists, for people who are um, maybe new to this field, new to this specialization in the first place. I think it's really with this important to move from an automatic frame of reference, like these things just happen automatically and I can't help it. I'm doing it all the time and I can't help it. It's just so automatic to understanding, and I'll teach you guys how to do this, 
to more of a habitual frame of reference, rather coming to this understanding that these things are very habitual, they're bad habits, and although they might be fleeting and there might be a very, very small window of time of opportunity for you to kind of get your foot in there and, you know, wedge your willingness in there and and do some of the work that I'm going to have you guys do, it's not automatic. And we really need to come to that understanding first and foremost. And then finally, we're going to try to review some exposure and response prevention um, ideas specifically for pure O or for people who are struggling with mental compulsions and maybe some other treatment tips in there too. But first things first, I I like to kind of remind everybody that it takes 10 to 17 years. Some of the studies are even making that gap Uh, make it even longer, that it takes 14 to 17 years on average between when someone starts to exhibit symptoms that are consistent and characteristic of OCD to when they actually get a proper diagnosis and the proper treatment for it, which we know the gold standard treatment for OCD and anxiety and related conditions is exposure and response prevention. And there are lots of reasons why it could take someone that long to be struggling with these symptoms and then not as readily or as easily, um, maybe as some other diagnoses, get the diagnosis and the treatment that they need. So I think mental compulsions definitely contribute to professionals not being able to witness and diagnose properly. Um, Mental compulsions, I think, also inhibit someone from seeking treatment, whether that's directly inhibiting them from seeking treatment or kind of indirectly, right? So um, directly, I think it can inhibit someone from seeking treatment when they are doubting their OCD diagnosis or doubting whether they like the thoughts or um, whether they don't like the thoughts. I think they can spend a lot of time ruminating about um, you know, the decision to seek out treatment or ruminating about the decision to speak to a professional about it and just generally engaging in indecisiveness about treatment and their next steps. And then I also think just kind of indirectly, I think a lot of times people don't realize that these are a problem, that mentally reviewing situations after they've happened, that that's not functional, that that's not the way that everyone necessarily does things and that's not helpful. Um, that it's going to contribute ultimately to your anxiety and and other uh, dysfunction later down the road. So I think sometimes people just aren't aware that that's actually not okay, that they actually don't need to to continue to do that. Um, And I think also this concept of pure O definitely goes against social and media portrayals of OCD, right? So, so many people out there are definitely struggling with what I know to be pretty straightforward. Uh, cases of obsessive compulsive disorder, but because it's not what society portrays or what the media portrays as this perfectionism and fear of germs or cleanliness, um, they never even thought that that what they were dealing with was even remotely within the realm of OCD. And I think that uh, we've come a, a little bit of a, an improved way. Like I think that we are slightly becoming more open and more aware of how OCD can portray itself in so many other presentations, but we have such a long way to go, especially when it comes to these mental compulsions. Um, I cannot tell you how many times I've worked with people who just kind of said, I thought everyone acted this way. I thought everyone else thought this, these kinds of thoughts all the time. Um, And so with that said, I think it can just be really hard too to differentiate between obsessions and mental compulsions. For example, rumination. So at what point does one 
go from an intrusive thought that they've had to where they actually are doing something more habitual with that thought. Meaning at what point does an obsession kind of turn into a compulsion when it's mental? Um, So we're going to get into all of those things. So first things first, just super basic, diagnostic basics of obsessive compulsive disorder. When we are looking at obsessive compulsive disorder, as far as diagnosis goes, we're looking for the presence of obsessions, compulsions, or both. So technically, someone could be diagnosed with OCD if they just have obsessions or if they just have compulsions. But in all of the work that I've done, I cannot tell you a single presentation of anybody who had just one and not the other. And in my most wild imagination, I cannot think of a presentation where this would be true. I cannot think of a presentation where somebody would just do compulsions and we wouldn't be able to identify some type of obsession or some type of uh, fear or anxiety that's kind of driving that. I alternatively can't think of anybody who just has obsessions and that they're not doing any compulsions or any kind of safety behaviors to negate or uh, neutralize that anxiety that they feel as a result of those obsessions. Um, There's always something going on, even if it's just avoidance. I'm a very strong believer that there's both happening. Um, And if you're not able to identify both, it's not that they're not there. I think we just need the right professional or the right Um, kind of assessment to really tease through some other more subtle things that may be going on. So obsessions are these recurrent and persistent thoughts, ideas, images, impulses, or feelings that are experienced as unwanted and that cause anxiety um, as well as some type of feeling that we have to get rid of that. And the compulsions are how people do that. So these are those repetitive behaviors or mental acts that someone is driven to perform in response to an obsession. And the function of those compulsions or the rituals, uh, it's it's aimed at reducing that stress or the dread of some situation. And usually someone with OCD will recognize these things as being excessive or unreasonable, but not always. So we definitely do a lot of the time deal with individuals who have what we call low insight or even poor or absent insight. So that's not necessarily um, a driving diagnostic factor there. Um, And we also are generally looking for, are these things time consuming? Um, The diagnostic and statistical manual um, for diagnosing purposes really specifies one plus hour a day. But you know, if it's causing impairment and distress, uh, that's something that we can work on for sure. So um, really getting into next the origins of pure O. So if you um, struggle with mental compulsions, you're probably familiar with this term pure O. So um, this brings me back to my days in residential treatment uh, when I was working with individuals who were at residential treatment for OCD and anxiety. And I worked with so many people who came in and said that they have pure O. I have pure O. Um, and, and with that came this air of almost like, I don't have compulsions. There's nothing that you can do. I'm different. Um, I've, I've been through other treatments. I've been working with other professionals. I have no compulsions. This is just the way that I am. How can you help me? Um, and when it's, when it's with that, uh, kind of, you know, other difficulties associated with that. Like when it's with those assumptions, I guess, that's dangerous because that's not what the term was intended for. Um, So Pure O was a term that was coined by Dr. Stephen Phillipson. He's the clinical director and licensed psychologist at the Center for Cognitive Behavioral Psychotherapy. 
And he coined the term pure O or purely obsessional or OCD without compulsions, otherwise known as, um, because he worked with a lot of individuals who presented with OCD, but they didn't have observable compulsions. And so even Dr. Stephen Phillipson acknowledged very clearly that even those who have pure O and kind of fall into this subtype that he coined, there are compulsive responses there. They're just not always visible or overt or externally completed or carried out. So um, Dr. Stephen Phillipson did not intend for the term pure O to be carried with this assumption that I have no compulsions. There's nothing that you can do for me. I am not going to respond to treatment. ERP won't work for me. That was not it at all. Um, it was more so this person has a lot of mental compulsions. They're not necessarily um, dominated primarily with physical or overt compulsions, say like hand washing or reassurance seeking. And although those things may happen, they struggle primarily with mental compulsions. Um, and a lot of times that's really helpful for people to, to know, right, that they have pure O, um, that they have this kind of subtype because this term pure O has become this informal term in the OCD community, um, almost in a sense that other subtypes have, right, like contamination OCD or sexual orientation OCD or relationship OCD. And I think pure O brings a sense of solidarity to those who are living with those intrusive experiences and those mental compulsions because – Again, I think it categorizes them just like any other subtype. I think now with Dr. Phillipson kind of coining the term pure O, it's like they have a home now. They have a home now and that brings them for one reason or another some sense of comfort that somehow like they're they're already inherently part of a community where they're not alone. There's nothing wrong with them. They're not broken. They have pure O with all these other individuals who also have pure O. So I think in a way, yes, pure O does exist insofar as it is an informal term in the OCD community. It categorizes individuals just like any other subtype, and it brings these individuals a sense of comfort and belonging and solidarity um, that they are not alone in their struggles. But it also doesn't exist, right? So it does not mean that someone doesn't have compulsions. It does not mean the way that I, I hear it being used quite often. Um, it usually means that, that they just struggle primarily with mental compulsions, right? So um, we don't want individuals to feel that if they have pure O, that that has to hinder their recovery in any way. Um, and a specializing OCD therapist is usually going to be able to identify overt or physical rituals too, right? So I've worked with plenty of people who were, you know, on the ship of I have pure O, I don't have compulsions, you know, the typical skills that you teach or the typical path of treatment, it's not going to work for me like it would for other people. I'm usually able to identify other overt rituals that they're doing. So even if it's as simple as avoidance or reassurance seeking or distraction or something like that, right? So um, there's usually stones that can be turned over and little um, nuggets of information that if you're working with a therapist who truly specializes in OCD and they're kind of a little detective about these compulsions, we'll be able to find something. Um, so there's, again, I've n I cannot think of a person or a presentation that I've worked with or one that I could imagine in my wildest imagination where someone would not have some type of compulsion or some type of problematic behavior that is reinforcing this whole system.
I want you to stop everything that you're doing and do not think of a pink elephant. No matter what you do, just stop thinking of a pink elephant. What do you end up thinking about but a pink elephant, right? This example is used in the OCD and recovery community to try to get people to understand that when you try to stop certain thoughts, you actually end up having more of those thoughts. The Octopus, an OCD advocacy and recovery shop, is going to be selling pink elephant stuffed animals as a visible reminder for this story and for this concept that we teach about. For every one pink elephant stuffed animal that's purchased, she's actually going to be donating another one of those pink elephants to a child who's in residential treatment for OCD. How cool is that? Visit theoctopus.com and click notify when available to join the waitlist. The elephants will be in soon. So I won't go into too far about the OCD cycle. I'm assuming that uh, if you're this deep into my podcast, you've probably uh, hopefully listened to some more basic podcasts at the beginning. Um, And so I'm going to assume that you all know that compulsions negatively reinforce the obsession, right? So I think that's the most important thing to know here, that every time you guys engage in a ritual, whether that's mental or physical you are basically giving your brain the message that that thing was scary, that that thing warranted some type of response. You're basically giving your brain this file or this piece of documentation that's like, okay, check, got it, cool. This is what this person thinks is scary. This must have warranted some type of response in the first place. So in order to keep this person alive and on alert, because that's my job, I'm going to keep a careful documentation of this information so that I know I can help keep them safe and alive um, and alert for next time. So every time, you guys, every time you give into a compulsion, whether it's mental or physical, it doesn't matter what it is. It matters the function of it. If you're doing some type of compulsion to reduce the fear or to reduce the anxiety that you feel from an obsession, it's going to feel good temporarily. It's going to make it feel worse next time because your brain doesn't know that you have OCD. Your brain only knows how you act and and what you uh, interpret as threatening or what you don't based on your behaviors. So there are some problems with these mental compulsions, obviously. So they're not visible, they're not observable, and so they are going to sometimes go undetected, right? So it's really common for these mental compulsions if you're working with someone who doesn't have as much experience with OCD, or even if you do work with someone who has a lot of experience with OCD, sometimes these compulsions can fly under the radar for you as a person with OCD or for the therapist. So it's really important that we do a lot of, as therapists, a lot of our detective work, that we do a lot of functional analysis of kind of the compulsions that are going on. And we honestly, we need to rely a lot on our clients' reports and our own careful questioning um, because it's not going to come down to just kind of our basic obvious observations, right? Like we can't, we can witness someone going into the bathroom and spending a lot of time in the bathroom or they have a really clean and organized room or the room smells like chemicals because they've cleaned it. We can't necessarily have that kind of visible evidence that someone is or has been doing compulsions mentally. Um, I think that mental compulsions pack the same, if not more of a punch, as physical rituals. So another issue with them is that I think a lot of times people tend to justify them, so even more so than physical rituals. Um, 
we can definitely get stuck in that uh, game of trying to justify the physical rituals, right? Like, oh, normal people wash their hands under these circumstances, or it's normal for people to tidy up their house this way. Um, But I think even more so with mental compulsions, we tend to justify them a little bit more. Um, But the same roles and the same functions apply to mental rituals as they do for physical compulsions. So the same way that when you go and you wash your hands and you reinforce the whole OCD cycle, you're doing that when you do a mental compulsion too. And so for that reason, I think mental rituals can be just as if just as debilitating, if not more debilitating than physical rituals sometimes, because especially with mental compulsions, I think you could all agree that we do them more fleetingly. We do them kind of more on an automatic pilot type of situation versus like getting up from the couch, walking in the direction of the bathroom, um, opening the door, turning on the light, rolling up our sleeves, getting the soap, putting on the water, like the, the mental compulsions can be done just so much more easily, unfortunately. Um, And so really important that we know that these mental compulsions reinforce that this quote-unquote problem is a problem. It warrants a response. That's the message that you're telling your brain. So every time you do a mental compulsion, whether it's reviewing a situation or engaging in significant rumination or you're telling yourself self-assurance about something – You're reinforcing that this thing is a problem and it couldn't just be let go, that it is a problem, that it warranted some type of response. And because of that, next time your brain knows that information now and because of that, you're going to be more likely to engage in this behavior and engage in it more intensely. So next time it's going to feel more urgent, you're going to feel more unsure, and you're probably going to feel more depressed, more confused, and way more anxious. So... As therapists, I think it's really important that we provide a lot of education and instill a lot of hope for you guys. Um, It's important that your therapist um, kind of appears confident in the treatment. I think it's also important that we explain to people, and I'll explain to you guys right now listening, um, that we sit with uncertainty all the time, right? So, so many times when I'm working with people who say they have pure O or who um, struggle primarily with mental compulsions, um... I hear this a lot. Like, I can't, I can't handle sitting with that. I I can't, how do you sit with uncertainty about that? And it's like, you sit with uncertainty all the time. If you got in your car today, you have sat with the uncertainty that you could have gotten in a car accident. Um, You have sat with the uncertainty that you could have gotten hit by a drunk driver. If you took a bite of food recently, you took that chance that that bite of food could have contained you know, a bone in it or something completely disgusting or a piece of foil or it could have been too big of a bite and you could have choked on it. But chances are you did all that stuff without doing the safety behaviors anyway. Um, If you have recently um, tried a new food, right? Like you're sitting with that uncertainty that you could have been deathly allergic to it and had a reaction. And every time we walk, we sit with the uncertainty that we could trip. We sit with the uncertainty all the time and we have that ability. It's not like our brains are like there's just this frayed edge and this wire that's been cut and we're not capable of it. We are capable of it. We do it all the time. It's just in this area we do rituals. We have in this area given our our brain the message that sitting with uncertainty in this situation is unacceptable. And I think it's really important for you guys to know we have to break that automatic and I can't attitude. We cannot 
completely heal and recover from mental compulsions if we have that I can't attitude. So I think it's really critical to differentiate also an obsession from a compulsion. Um, So, you know, we have that initial thought, this thought that pops up, you can't help that. The initial thought that pops up, you can't help that thought that pops up. Anything that happens after that initial thought popping up could be compulsive, right? So initial thought, oh my gosh, what if that wasn't actually a pothole and it was a kid? Anything after that could be compulsive, right? So you continuing to think about it, you continuing to imagine all the other things that you could hit, you uh, feeling and trying to, you know, feel for if the, if your tire's a little bit bumpy and if there's still some stuff left on your tire, you looking in the uh, rearview mirror, you telling yourself that oh it's fine, you know, someone would have surely like pulled me over by now, like that's all compulsive. The only part in that that you can't help is that first initial thought. What if that wasn't a pothole? What if it was a kid? Everything after that could be a compulsion. So Mike Hetty, um, he's another really great professional um, and kind of pioneer, I think, in the OCD field. Um, I He said this once and I just keep coming back to it. You can't help a thought that pops up. You can help a thought that you conjure up. And since hearing that from Mike Hetty, I've just used it consistently with my members um, and it just kind of made everything just make sense, right? So you can't help a thought that pops up. You can help a thought that you conjure up. And so I want you guys to take that with you. You can't help that an automatic initial thought that comes up. But once you start really investing your mental energy and your mental effort into that, then it becomes compulsive. And we really want to make sure as therapists and as um, people with OCD, we want to make sure that we're not leaving any stones unturned. So like I've mentioned, I think mental compulsions in particular really require therapists to be a detective of sorts, right? To really determine like, what am I doing to try to make myself feel better? Um, What do I feel like I, I urgently need to do right now? I'm sitting with this anxiety. What am I thinking that I want to do right now and why? What's the function of that behavior that I want to do? And so um, next time in the next episode, guys, we're going to get into a whole list of mental compulsions. I'm going to go over um, as thorough of a list as I can provide, although it's impossible to create a complete list. Um, So we're going to go over a lot of examples of mental compulsions, ways that things like neutralizing can come off, um, why challenging thoughts is not helpful for OCD and anxiety treatments. We're going to talk about things like analyzing and ruminating and counting, um, the way that people can kind of monitor themselves and stay on guard. Um, I'm going to talk more about the functions of mental compulsion. So how it it tricks us into thinking that we're going to solve some type of problem or feel better or get closer to knowing. Um, And then we can go over some examples. We can go over what to do instead. So um, I know I talk a lot about what not to do, right? Like we're not going to mentally review that situation. We're not going to engage in rumination. But I think it's also really important to leave you guys with things to do instead. So um, I know that's a a tricky point for a lot of you. Like, okay, well, what do I do instead? And the next episode is going to go over all of that. So um, as we wrap up here, I want to remind you guys to come back for the second episode. We'll go a lot more in depth about those things. Um, And I'm hopeful that that serves you as far as identifying other mental compulsions that you could be doing, why, 
how we start to let go of some of those compulsions um, and kind of what to do instead. So I hope this was helpful. Um, Stay tuned for the next episode. And until next time, guys, keep doing all the hard things. For more information and resources, head to my website at www.jennaoverbaugh.com. From there, you can sign up for my email newsletter so you can make sure that you are the most up-to-date about upcoming resources, podcast episodes, blogs, challenges, and more. Also, check me out on Instagram at jenna.overbaugh and tune into some other episodes here while you're at it. As always, if you have a free minute, it would mean the world to me if you could please subscribe and rate this podcast. Subscriptions and ratings help me keep the podcast going and help me spread the word to other people who need these resources and they otherwise may not get them. With that said, thank you guys so much for tuning in. I really love creating these episodes for you. And until next time, keep doing all the hard things.